I want to take you back to your childhood days for just a moment this morning. Think back to that time when you had your very first crush. And you were wondering, does she really like me? Or, or does he really like me? And so maybe you're out in the schoolyard, maybe you're at home, and you reach down and you pluck a flower. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me. Hmm. Let me get a different flower. We know how that goes. And, and eventually, we, we begin to think, oh, I'm going to count these petals out real quick, and I'll make sure she loves me. Now, I wonder how many times we go through life thinking about our relationship with God like that little flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me. Yes, he loves me. And you know, I don't have to count the petals on a flower to know that he loves me. Really, all I need to do is look out over a field of flowers. Because if he can provide for that flower, the petals for me to, to pluck off in some novelty, surely he can love me. To begin our lesson this morning, I want to ask you a question. How much do you suppose that God loves you? How much does God love you? Is there any possibility or is there any way that we can even count the ways that God loves us? Sure, we could make out a list. We could count our blessings and name them one by one as the song goes. But we, we would never be able to describe the type of love that God has for us. Now, maybe we can make some comparisons. Maybe we can compare it that the, the love that God has for us with the love that a friend has for another friend. Maybe your mind wanders to the battlefield, and, and we see this group of soldiers who has, has quickly become comrades in arms. And they're in this foxhole. They're in the thick of a battle, and a grenade falls into that foxhole. And one of the soldiers, he sees it, and without even thinking about it, for the love of his fellow comrades, he jumps and he huddles over that grenade, taking the, the impulse of that blast on himself to save his friends. And we think what a wonderful sacrifice that was. He did that for his friends. Jesus even likened that and to himself, and perhaps even suggesting that this is the greatest type of sacrifice that you can make for your friends. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. But you know, that doesn't even give us the fullest picture of God's love, because as we'll discover in just a little bit, Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice even for his enemies. And so maybe we can compare the love of God uh, to the love that a father or a mother has for their children. That's a comparison that's been made in Scripture as well. Jesus said, if a father knows how to good, give good gifts to his children, 
Do you not think that the Father in heaven also knows how to give good gifts? What about the disciplining that we read about over in Hebrews chapter 12? A father can discipline his children. So how much more will God, our Father, discipline us as his children? Or what about that love that a mother would have for her child? To carry the baby in her womb for nine months. And even in the great pain, the great anguish that's experienced in childbirth, she'll find such great delight and joy in bringing forth that baby and holding that baby in her arms, carrying him all the days of his life. Even Isaiah compared the love that God has for us to the love of a mother. But he says, a mother might forget. But we know God never forgets. So, so to what can we compare it? Is it possible for us to even compare the love of God to anything at all that we know? Well, the fact of the matter is nothing, nothing can compare. His love is just that great. It can't be measured. And so the only way for us to be able to, to draw some conclusions about the love of God is to see how God himself expresses that love, to see the expression in the written word, how he demonstrated, how he shows it, how he proves his love. The way in which we must measure, and really neither one of these things can be measured either, but, but it's to the backdrop of our sin and to the light of his grace. Now, neither of those can be measured. Our sin can't be measured. Even if we can think about one sin, just one sin, there, there's no way that we can possibly measure the, the damage that sin does, the hurt that that sin causes for our God, who's so holy that He can't even look upon sin. We, we can't. And if that can't be measured, how much more can we not measure the love of God? So how can we even describe it? Well, the answer is we can't. Now, we can try. We can try, and that's my hope, and that's my prayer for our study together this morning. Turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 5. We'll be spending the most of our time there together this morning, Romans chapter 5. In verse 8, Paul writes and says, God demonstrated His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If God has demonstrated the fullness of His love toward His enemies, how much more? is he able to demonstrate his love to and through his friends? And this morning, depending on who you are, you may be wondering, does God really love me? Maybe there's someone here or someone who is tuning in today that, that hasn't yet entered into a relationship with God. 
And so your question is, does God really love me? Maybe there's someone here or or tuning in today who is in a relationship with God, who has entered into that union, and they're still asking that question, does God really love me? If God really loves me, then why this and this and this? Or if God really loves me, why not that? We have all of these questions in life that are all about the love of God. And this is what we know. We know we cannot measure the love of God, but this is what we can do. We can determine how God deals with us on the basis of our relationship with Him. If His love was without measure toward us in a moment when we were sinners, when we were enemies, when we were weak, how much more is He able to demonstrate His love toward us as His friends? Now for some of us, this will be stepping back in time. Just as Paul was as he was writing Romans chapter 5, to look back at a time before we were part of that union with him. For some, this is your existence now. This is the type of relationship that you have with God now. In, in three verses, Romans chapter 5, verses 6, 8, and 10, Paul describes the relationship. While we were still weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. According to Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins. Maybe this morning. You're dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You're walking according to the course of this world. You're following after the prince of the power of air. By nature, you're a child of wrath. The hostility exists between you and God. There's this great division. There's this great gulf that exists between you and God. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Understand this. God still loves you. And this doesn't mean that that you're necessarily a bad person in comparison to the rest of the people in the world. It just means that the relationship that exists between you and God is one of hostility. You're at enmity with God because you're not in the relationship with Him that He desires for you to have. The relationship that He desired from the very beginning of time, the one that was lost in the Garden of Eden. He wants that relationship. He wants to call you His friend. But he can't call you his friend if you're his enemy. And there are two bases for being his enemy. One, you're wicked. Now for some of us, at one time we were wicked. And maybe we say, I was never wicked. I was a sinner, but I was not. Yes, if you were a sinner, you were wicked. You were ungodly. You were wicked. I chose to use the word wicked here, because it's kind of a shocker. Sometimes we go through life and we we think, I made a mistake. 
I messed up. No, you were wicked. You just committed wickedness. We don't like that term, though, wicked. But you're in debt to God. You've sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. It's also a relationship of hostility where you are powerless. It doesn't mean that you're without the power to believe in God. It doesn't mean that you're without the power to respond to the message of God. It means that you're powerless to save yourself. You're in a debt that you cannot pay. You can't pay it because everything that you could give to God, He already owns. It's impossible to pay the ransom price for your sins. It's impossible to pay the terms of redemption ourselves. You're powerless. You're weak in that condition. You need God to pay the price for you. You need God to pay the terms of redemption. You need God to save you. You can't do it yourself. If you're at enmity with God, knowing that God loves you now in that condition, how much more should you want to be his friend? Now looking specifically into verse 6, this is what, what he tells us. He says, while we were sinners, at the right time, you know, love always finds a way, at the right time, Christ died for us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 tells us, by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. Not just a few chosen people. He died for everyone. That means every single one of us who are here, every single one who is tuned in to this live stream, everyone in the world living today who has ever lived or will ever live. Jesus died for every single one of us. By the grace of God, even when we were his enemies. And for what purpose? Why did he die? So that we might become his friends. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 tells us that Jesus, whenever he came, he became poor. So that we who are poor might become rich. The one who had the greatest riches of heaven could come down, take on poverty himself, to, to be impoverished so that we who are poor, we who are weak, could become rich through him. Look with me again at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And the hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's not just that feeling, I'm all right with God and God's all right with me. This is a, a state of peace. It's that Hebrew shalom, that 
fullness, that, that wholeness. Because we've chosen to hate sin, the very sin that placed us at enmity with God in the first place, we've now entered into a relationship in which He can call us His friends. And by the blood of Jesus Christ, that blood that was shed upon the cross, we now have access or we have an entrance into or we have been introduced into this grace in which we stand. Now, when we think about grace, we can think about grace as that of a, a source. It comes from God. He's a gracious God, and he, he gives us all of these wonderful gifts. We can think about grace as a system of salvation. And we have faith in being saved by that system in which God, through Christ, has forgiven us. Or we can think about grace as a, as a state, a place where we're standing. Wherever we enter into this relationship, God pours out Christ's blood upon our lives. We're immersed in His blood. It's not as though we go through life and, and God dips into this little bottle of Christ's blood and He places a little drop of, us, of it on us here and here and here. We are completely covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We, we've entered into a relationship in which we walk by the light of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us from all sin. That church is standing in grace. We're no longer in a state of enmity. We're in a state of friendship with God. Whenever we entered into that relationship, God poured out His love. There was a moment in time, and, and the occasion of our immersion, when He poured out His love for us through His Holy Spirit, whom He gave us in that conversion moment. And so instead of being an enemy who's wicked and powerless, now that we are his friends, we have the greatest privilege. We have the highest privilege. What greater privilege can there be than to be called the friend of God? One of the greatest statements ever made about Abraham was that Abraham was the friend of God. You think about what a, what a privilege it is to be friends with a person sitting next to you this morning. Many of you, maybe you're sitting on your couch at home and you're sitting next to your spouse. What a blessing. What a privilege to have them as your best friend. And if, if they are such a good friend and you consider that to be such a great privilege, how much more, how much greater is it to have the privilege of being called the friend of God? That you'd be in a state of peace, which would also give you a peace that passes all understanding, even as you endure the sufferings of this life. Knowing that all the things that are coming upon us as we experience this life as human beings, or, or perhaps because we're Christians, perhaps we think, does God love me now? Maybe we think, why is God putting me through this? Why is He allowing me to endure this? 
Well, God allows us to endure these times. James even says, count it all joy because He can use our sufferings to give us an even greater hope. A certain expectation, a confident expectation. It's not only a privilege, but it's also a life in which He gives us power. When we were once powerless and when we were at enmity with God, Now, as his friend, he gives us power. Listen to what he says. He had the suffering of this present time. And then that suffering builds eventually into a greater hope. And how does he do it? That hope doesn't disappoint. Now, how is it that this hope doesn't disappoint? Because he's poured his love into our hearts. How did he do it? Through the Holy Spirit. Where's the Holy Spirit? He's in us. He's given Him to us. Now we may wonder, how does God pour the Holy Spirit? And we can separate it like this, by knowledge. We know that God loves us by the reading that we see within the Word of God. The Word of God tells us that God loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we continually read about the love of God. With with love, with, with perfect love, there's no fear. And we know that love because that's the type of love that the Scriptures teach us about. And in the moment of our conversion... The Holy Spirit operates as that life-giving agent, raising us from death and giving us a new life unto Him. He seals us for that day of redemption. He helps us in our weaknesses. He helps us to fight against the world, against our own flesh. He helps us fight against the devil. And He leads us in the paths of righteousness. He helps us to produce the fruit of the Spirit. He helps us in our prayers when we don't even know what to say. He even bears witness alongside of our own bearing witness that we are the children of God. He helps us. He aids us with with an energy that He works within. And if we will permit Him room, if we will give Him the opportunity to allow ourselves, to permit ourselves to be filled with the Spirit, He can help us. And He can aid us. And if God loved you, He loved you so much that He did the most difficult thing that we could possibly imagine. When we were His enemies, how much more? How much more do you suppose He will work in you and for you now that you are His friend? How much more? You know He can't love you less. You know He can't love you more. But how much more can you depend on the life that's in the relationship you have with Him to help you, to help you have the peace and and the confidence and the hope for the next stage in your life? Verse 9 of Romans 5 reminds us that there will come a time for those who are God's enemies, there there will come a time when the wrath of God will come. 
The wrath of God will come to those who are his enemies. But for those who are his friends, for those who have been justified by faith, for those who have entered into and stand in the grace of God, that day will not be a day of wrath for us. But instead, it will be the saving time. It will be a day of salvation. Hebrews 9 describes that he will come again not to deal with sin, but rather to to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So as we live this life, as we approach the day when Jesus will come again, we continually live under the blood of Christ. We continue to live and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And when that day comes, as we read in verses 10 and 11 of Romans chapter 5, when that day comes, how much more shall we be saved by his life? If we've been reconciled unto him by the blood of his son, now that we're reconciled, how much more? How much more? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has now given us reconciliation. It's in that state that we can behold the Lord in all His glory. We'll be able to see Him, and not only able to see Him, but in a very limited sense, to partake of that glory to be able to partake of it because of our own resurrected bodies that will be like His, a glorified body, to be able to bask in the radiance of His glory. So we ask the question again, how much more? If we're His friends, how much more should we be confident that He will take us into glory? Think about the way that this is set up. Think about the way that Paul has been addressing this all along. If God loves you so much that he gave you his son when you were an enemy, when you were wicked, whenever you were a sinner, when you didn't deserve it, how much more will he help you now that you're his friend? And if you're his friend now, living in a relationship with him, when when you have confidence in Him and, and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God right now, how much more can we count on Him? Depend on Him to lead us into glory. So we bring our lesson to a close this morning. I'll ask one last question. How much more could God love you? Now, for those who are Christians, you've entered into a relationship with God in which you are a friend of God. Sin is all around us. And we recognize that our faith can sometimes harden. And it could be that your faith is hardened this morning. Maybe it's been strangled because of sin that you've permitted into your life. And your conscience has become seared over time. Maybe you've starved your faith by, by keeping it to yourself and keeping yourself from a relationship with God, keeping yourself from a relationship 
with your fellow Christians. Maybe you need the prayers of the church so that God will keep your heart soft, so that God will keep your heart flexible, so that you can once again stand and rejoice with confident expectation of what God can do through you and what God can do for you. But it could be this morning that there is a relationship that exists between you and God, and that is that you're at enmity with Him. You're separated from God. You're wicked. You're powerless. You're a sinner. You're ungodly. You're His enemy. Maybe that's the case this morning. You know that God loves you. You know that God gave the greatest treasure of heaven so that you wouldn't be His enemy, but instead you would be His friend. How can we speak about a love greater than that? But a better question for you. How can you resist that love? How can you reject the love of God? If your desire today is to resist it no longer, to reject it no longer, We want you to reach out and let us know. You can call us. You can text us. You can email us. We'd love nothing more than than to pray with you, to, to pray for you, or to assist you even today in your obedience to the gospel. Consider God's love for you. And then consider your response to that love. Consider it now while we sing together.